Good morning. It's good to be gathered with you all today. Uh, we're just going to do a short little section today. It's very small, but I think there's plenty here for us to be well fed. We've been in this section of Mark for a while now, so I'm not going to spend a, a tremendous amount of time on introduction other than to, to highlight that we've seen quite an escalation of this conflict between the Jewish leaders and the Lord Jesus. This is Wednesday during the Passion Week, and he's regularly been visiting the temple, first to observe what's going on, then to throw out the money changers and purify the temple, and now he's here teaching. Luke's Gospel tells us he'd come here to teach every day since he had been in Jerusalem. This whole section of the narrative with the, the camera kind of zoomed in on the confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, it began at the end of chapter 11. In verse 27, it says that while Jesus was walking in the temple, the scribes and elders came to him. Do you remember their train of thought here that they wanted to get him discredited or even say something so offensive that he could be tried and executed for it? They're afraid he's going to start a revolution, so they want to have the upper hand by being proactive in their scheme. That's why they came to him first. The scripture doesn't say explicitly that he went there to confront them. However, is God sovereign? Does Jesus know about their fears and their motivations? Does he know about their schemes? Yes, he does. Does he know that his appearance there answering every one of their arguments perfectly, frustrating them, making them look stupid, uneducated, unspiritual, will most certainly result in an extreme, utmost urgency with which they will seek to have him arrested and killed? Of course he knows. He goes anyway. It's easy for us to think about this great injustice of the murder of the Lord Jesus and forget that he was in absolute control the entire time. So why did he go? He went willingly in submission to his Father and because of his great love for you and for me. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Why did he go? It was God's will that Jesus bear the iniquity of many so that they might become righteous. That's us, dear church. He went willingly for us. And why was he willing? Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this. We just studied this with Pastor Dan a few weeks ago. Wasn't it wonderful what he showed us from that scripture? Here's what it says again. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to who? Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had a joy to redeem a bride for himself, to make an unclean people clean. He loves you so much. He knew what waited for him there. He knew that his wisdom, his righteous understanding of his own word, and his unflinching boldness to tell the truth would anger those Jewish leaders. But he went anyway. He went to obey the will of the Lord and for the joy of redeeming us to himself. Doesn't it make you love him? We've talked about this divine schedule that he was on quite a bit. But I'll remind you again, this is the appointed time. Friday of the Passover week was the day that God had put in his calendar for Jesus to be crucified. Do you remember so many times in the past him being secretive about his identity, not wanting to be noticed? Not wanting his presence to provoke these leaders into acting early? But now it's time. It's time for a provocation. It's time for the straw to break the camel's back. So he's not subtle anymore. In this passage we're studying today, Jesus is going to tell us exactly what God thinks of these Jewish leaders and their religious hypocrisy. So let's turn and read Mark 12, 38 through 40. Just three verses today. The word of the Lord. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this word this morning, as we study this and, and try to understand Lord, let us be exhorted to see your holiness. Let us be admonished to do away with religious hypocrisy. And Lord, teach us to beware of the danger of false teachers. The danger to them and the danger to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 38 starts with, in his teaching, he said. Let's talk about that for a minute. He finished contending with the Jewish leaders, and it says they did not dare ask him any more questions. So what happened next? Remember, they came up to him, and they started badgering him with their tricky theology questions and ridiculous scenarios. But where was he walking to when he entered there in the first place? What was the practical reason for his visit. It was to teach. 
We said this earlier, Luke 21, which is talking about the same date and time in the narrative, tells us he was going to the temple every day to teach. So he was there to teach. And now that the interruption is over, he's going to teach. What's he going to teach about? There's a crowd gathered around who just watched him easily win the debate against the upper echelon of Jewish society, particularly the religious leaders. The scribes are mentioned many times in Mark, where the Sadducees are only mentioned once. The distribution is similar in other Gospels, with the Sadducees being mentioned a few times, but the overwhelming majority of the times we hear about religious authorities opposing Jesus, it's the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes were the religious class most closely associated with the priesthood. In the past, in Jewish history, a higher number of them actually had been priests and scribes at the same time. Although at this particular time in Jewish history, there were less men who were both priest and scribe. But the scribes and the priests were very closely loyal to each other and intermingled in their associations. Scribes were well-educated and experts in the Jewish law. To be a scribe means to be someone who writes, and they were the ones tasked with copying the Jewish scripture line by line by hand. They also functioned as lawyers and notaries, people who make things official, people who argue the law. They were closely associated with the Pharisees who were known for being so pious and holy. Some of the Pharisees were also priests, but most of them were businessmen who were synagogue leaders and had influence with the Sanhedrin because they had popular support from the common people. The Pharisees believed that the Jewish traditions that had been added to the law and passed down through the generations held as much moral authority as the law of God itself. The actual revealed word of the Lord. They put their traditions on par with that. They were the ones, the Pharisees, who added rules upon rules upon rules to the law of God, making it burdensome. God hates this. His law is not meant to be burdensome. What does 1 John 5 say? By this we know the love of the by this we we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we do what? Keep his commandments. And his commandments are not what? That's right. They're not burdensome. Have you ever thought about this? So many people complain that Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts, and, and sometimes we don't have a good response, right? I'm going to give you one today. Scott and I were talking about this last week, and I didn't know it was going to make it into the sermon. When, when someone tells you God's law is burdensome, what do you say to them? I'll tell you. You say, no, it's not. It's simple. It's simple. And they'll say, well, there's so many rules and things I have to do and, and don't do. Hold up your Bible and ask them, how many pages contain the law? The actual, the actual law of Moses, maybe a few hundred pages. Well, there's, there's more than that. There's prescriptive text throughout the whole scripture, right? Including instructions to, to God's people in the wisdom books. and Take out all just, just the storytelling, the descriptive text, and add only the prescriptive text, and you've got, what, a couple hundred pages more. Even if it's the whole book, it's what, 1,500 pages? Ask them to go look up the United States tax code. How many pages is that? I'll tell you, the actual code itself, 2,652 pages. 
Now, now ask Cherie because she knows about this, what I'm going to tell you next. You know how much documentation it goes with it so you can understand? 70,000 pages of court cases, interpretations, rules, guidelines, things that have to be understood so that you don't break the do's and don'ts and get a fine or end up in jail or your CPA lose their license. Am I right? That is a burdensome law. That's just our tax code. How many other laws do we have with tens of thousands of pages full of personal preferences, partialities, pet projects, all of which can get us in hot water or, or jail? How long is, God, is God's tax code? I didn't, I didn't study to find out exactly, but I bet any of you 50 bucks, I bet it's th three to five pages or less. You can summarize it in a couple paragraphs. God's law is not burdensome. It's simple. It's a delight and a protection for God's people. When it's obeyed, it encourages human flourishing and results in God's glory. I got sidetracked for a minute there, but I want to share that with you. God's law isn't burdensome. When someone says that, share your answer with them. Show them how simple and lovely it is. Back to the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees were typically well off, esteemed by common Jews and especially honored to have such close interaction with the law of God and the other leaders and, and obviously receiving what seems like God's material blessing in their lives. They were considered to be very righteous. They were popular. If you went to a wedding and a scribe or a Pharisee was there, you wanted to sit at his table for dinner. So now Jesus is going to come out and speak directly against them. He warns the hearers in his audience, beware. What does beware mean? It, it's the same Greek word used many times in the New Testament. It means look, look, but in a more imperative sense, look out, be careful. It's translated when Jesus says it many times as take heed, meaning pay attention. Why do we need to be careful and look out and take heed? Why do we pay attention? It's because there's danger. There's a danger. What do you say when your friend is crossing the street and there's a speeding car that doesn't see them? Look out! Or when your child is too close to the edge of something? Be careful! Jesus is warning of a real, present, deadly danger. He's going to expose their hypocrisy and some of the specific things they do that are offensive to God to show a danger. We only have three short little verses in Mark, but if you want to see a longer list of them, of the sin Jesus is accusing them of in the very same conversation, go back and read Matthew 23 again. We read some of it earlier today. The word hypocrisy is not actually mentioned here in Mark. It's only implied, but this is the same conversation. What did he say over and over in the scripture reading this morning? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. That's right. You hypocrites. That's what he calls them, right? In Mark here, only the word scribes is used, but I'm comfortable saying the writer is using the word scribes alone for efficiency, not for exclusivity. You know what I mean? What I mean is he's talking about the religious leadership as a whole, not making a distinction about the specific sins of scribes as opposed to everyone else, okay? So I want us to understand something. I didn't understand this until I did this study. We often preach this section and we see it as a warning against personal hypocrisy, but I want us to see something else today. 
While it is descriptively a warning against personal religious hypocrisy, that message is better preached from Matthew 23. I've preached on that several times from this very pulpit in the last year. It comes up a lot with Jesus. Hypocrisy is a big concern. It's one of the things that God hates. And we should take heed to examine ourselves against hypocrisy. We must have a genuine love of God. Our love of God is what motivates our holy living. Truly tasting and seeing His goodness and rejoicing in His love, our obedience proceeds from our love of Him. Because we're His adopted children, given a new name, guaranteed an inheritance, and made to be like Him. Not so others will think that we're holy. Not so that we'll be popular. Not because holy living often brings material benefits. Yes, it does. We've learned that before. But that's not why we live holy. We live holy because He's changed us to want to be like Him and because we love Him. That is part of what Jesus is saying here in Mark. But there's also more. The text actually says, beware of them. Look and read it again. Beware of the scribes. First, why is he saying this? Because they're popular. They have the support of the people. They get a lot of honor and attention. They're the guests of honor at all the feasts. Everybody wants to be like them. They look really good. They got the best clothes and and people honor them. And so they're very influential. When a scribe speaks, you listen. But this is not to their benefit or to the benefit of the people under their influence. Why not? Because everything they do is motivated by glorification of self, fear of man, and material greed. Let's talk about some of these things that they do that are offensive to God. Not just the outward offense, but the heart that drives it. We'll go through the list. They like to walk around in long robes. What's a big deal with a long robe? Well, normal clothing for the average working man back then would have been a simple tunic. In Greek, it's called a a chiton. It would be about knee length and designed in such a way that if you were going to do hard labor, you would kind of tie it up around your knees, like tie it up around here, so that you'd still be modest, you'd still be covered, but your legs would have a full range of motion so you could do hard work and you could move around quickly. When 1 Peter 1.13 says, gird up your loins, that's exactly what Peter is talking about. The word, uh, th- that's an action he would be very familiar with because he was what? He was a fisherman. He knew about this hard work and girding up your loins. But this long robe that Jesus is talking about that the, that the scribes like to wear The word for that is stoli. Stoli. It's a long, luxurious, ankle-length robe worn by those who don't do manual labor. It's a piece of luxury clothing. It's where we get our word for stole, like a woman's stole. It's like now when you go to a restaurant at lunchtime during your workday. You see a guy there and he's wearing, you you can imagine this, he's wearing dickies and boots and a tucked-in orange shirt, and he's got a name badge on and maybe a, a you know, reflective vest, and he's eating a sandwich in a hurry. What do you know about him? He's a construction worker. He's on his lunch break. And he's trying to get back to work. 
And then there's the guy a few tables over off in the corner. What's he wearing? He's wearing some, uh, you know, some nice loose-fitting linen pants and sandals and a, a, a linen shirt, open-throated shirt, sandals, perfectly combed hair, and he's got a Rolex on his wrist, and he's casually sipping his coffee reading a magazine. We've all seen that guy, too. What do you know about him? He probably doesn't have to work, or at least not very hard. He likes it when you notice his Rolex, doesn't he? They had a look, the scribe look. Why is this offensive to God? Is it, is it wrong to be wealthy? No. Is it wrong to have nice things? No, it's not. The next part gives us a clue about why it's offensive. They like greetings in the marketplace. They walk around hoping to be noticed. They want to be popular and influential. They want to be highly regarded. They want people to highly esteem them, to know how important they are. What heart attitude does God desire for his children? That's right. And it comes with a biblical modesty. If, if you want a headache, go ask a bunch of Christians, strangers on the internet, for Christian strangers on the internet, for a biblical modesty definition and see what kind of answers you get. Now I'll give you what the scripture says. Look at what Peter says to the women in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be what? The hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is not a prohibition against owning or wearing jewelry or having nice clothing. You all look very nice today. What he's getting at is that what matters to God is your heart. Do you present yourself in such a way that others will notice you? That you'll get glory from their high opinion of your importance and your appearance? Now the scripture here is also not giving us license to wear whatever we want. Men and women both ought to be modest. We ought not to reveal to others what is owned by God and meant to be enjoyed only by our spouse. This is plain from Scripture. If you need to know the text on that, there's plenty of them, and I'll share them with you later this week if you come talk to me. Scripture speaks plainly about modesty for, for women as well. I'm not afraid to say it from here, even though it might be unpopular in a culture overwhelmed and inundated with feminism where someone with two X chromosomes can never do anything wrong. But that's not true biblically, beloved. And one of the failures of American pulpits for the last few generations is preaching against sin common to women, in addition to admonishing men. Men are to be modest, but women especially are to be modest. In commenting on 1 Timothy 2.9, which tells women to adorn themselves in proper apparel, Paul Washer's wife once said something wise. She said this, quote, If your clothing is a frame for your face from which the glory of God is to shine, it's proper. End quote. If it draws attention to your face and doesn't distract others from noticing your wisdom, your godly character, and your good works, it's good. If it shows off your body to outline it and make it noticed, it's sensual. Another thing Paul Washer says that's wise, God loves beauty, but he hates sensuality. Men apply this principle too. 
Apply it to yourselves, but also guard your wives and your daughters from the danger of immodesty. Their sight of their bodily beauty is owned by God alone, and it's meant to be enjoyed by their husband alone. But men, we're not often as noticed for our bodies, right? What are we noticed for? Our status, our wealth. Do you see the immodesty of the scribes? They want others to see how important they are. They want to walk around in their leisure clothing, soliciting greetings to constantly remind everybody of how cool they are and so that nobody will forget them. Is that a godly attitude? No. Who are God's people supposed to draw attention to? Who is meant to get all glory? The Lord of heaven. The Lord Jesus, the author of the law that they were so proud of having studied and memorized and elaborated on. They should be making his name known, not their own. When you come talk to a preacher after a sermon, don't ever tell him, that was a great sermon you preached. Lest the glory go to him. Say to him instead, God was glorified and I was convicted or admonished or encouraged or strengthened in my faith. Remind him that God's word and not his word is the thing that impacted you. What's next? Verse 39, they have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts. Not only do they want everyone to know their name, they have internalized this desire and they think that they are worthy of it. They presume to take it every chance they get by making sure they always get the place of honor wherever they go. They just assume it's for them. This really happened. Jesus isn't just naming an abstract thing where he can see their heart attitudes, but it's something that has actually been observed in the flesh. Look at Luke 14. Some of you remember this story. Luke 14, starting with verse 1. You can turn there. Luke 14, verse 1. I'm sorry, I think I'm starting with verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. This was, a, this was a feast going on at one of the spiritual leaders' houses. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus had eaten with many people, over the course of his ministry, tax collectors, prostitutes, scribes, and priests. This is the only time this is named in the text specifically, but I'm sure he has observed it often. This wasn't just an illustration of a problem that he perceived, but a real thing. They thought so highly of themselves that they would show up at a, at a wedding feast or a, a religious feast and presume the place of honor for themselves, sitting at what, what we would do, sit at the head of the table, 
They were completely presumptuous in their lack of humility. We have a word for esteeming oneself too highly and presumptuously acting on it. What is that? Pride, arrogance, good. Jesus doesn't use that word here, but we can draw from context that it's offensive to God. Does the Bible talk about pride anywhere else? (laughs) If you don't remember, let me help you. I'll give you a very, very small sample. Here's how God feels about it. Proverbs 16.5, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. What's he going to do about it? Isaiah 2.12, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that are exalted, and they will be humbled. What about instructions for us, for believers? Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. What makes a person like this? Let's, let's look at a few more scriptures. Proverbs 2, 1-5. I'll just read this to you. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Did you hear it? Fear of the Lord, knowledge of him, comes from being what? A humble learner, a person who doesn't presume a person who's seeking to understand, they know they haven't made it. They know they need more. Proverbs 22.4, true humility and fear of the Lord go together. They lead to riches, honor, and long life. What does that tell us? They go together. They go together. Jonathan Edwards said it like this. A truly humble man is sensible of his natural distance from God, of his dependence on him, of the insufficiency of his own power and wisdom, And that it's by God's power that he is upheld and provided for and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and guide him and his might to enable him to do what he ought to do for him. Humility and fear of God go together. Where one is absent, the other also will be. So why didn't they fear God? John 12, 42 and 43 tell us something really interesting. It gives us insight into the mind of these Jewish leaders. Look what it says. This is around the same time frame. And part of this discussion is he's raised Lazarus from the dead and he's performed all kinds of verifiable miracles. How many thousands of people were on the road with him when he healed blind Bartimaeus? You remember that? There's a huge crowd there. So this is verifiable. These miracles are real. There's no way that they can deny them. And then John 12 says, 42, Nevertheless, many of the leaders... These same men, many of the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. Isn't that interesting? Many of these Jewish religious leaders had a belief. They had a belief in him. We think about the parable of the sower. We studied that back in Mark 4 many months ago. These men were like that thorny soil. The seed fell there, 
and it's good seed, but the soil is worried about worldly things. They're worried about losing their position, their influence, their popularity, their access to powerful men. So their belief is fruitless and it goes nowhere because they love man's glory more than God's glory and they feared man more than they feared God. You can't meaningfully love both and you cannot meaningfully fear both. Now all of what we've said so far are things that we can say are bad but when we examine ourselves we can identify them with them. we can identify with them somewhat at least I can I hope all of you can we can see how we are sometimes proud we can see how we sometimes put man above god how sometimes we like to receive attention how we have immodest hearts maybe even manifest an immodest dress or immodest attitude. We read this and we say to ourselves, those things are bad, but it's nothing that I haven't done. So I want to show you the last thing that he names as offensive in this short passage. If you have any doubt about their abject wickedness and their greed, you'll see it here, verse 40. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Devouring widows' houses, what does that mean? I'm a very poor Jewish historian, so I'll just share with you the general consensus of the commentaries that I read about this. Do you remember how we said that the scribes are like the lawyers and notaries of the day? And they're, they're held in high esteem in the community, almost like a nobility. The commentators think that this means that the scribes would have a practice of looking for a wealthy widow who was rather vulnerable and easily influenced, and they would pay her some special attention. They'd become her best friend, confidant, advisor, ultimately convincing her to support them financially, perhaps even naming them in her estate. But they didn't care about these women at all. They just wanted the money. It says, for a pretense, they made long prayers. That means they would take great pains to impress her with their uber spirituality, their knowledge of the law, and they would show how pleasing their lives were to God. Maybe months or years manipulating, getting close to her until the time was right. You can imagine this. Someday she would say to her dear close friend and advisor, how can I ever thank you for all your help? And he would whisper a small suggestion. What could be more noble? What could be more pleasing to God than financially supporting your scribe friend who loves God's law and has been such a good advisor to you? Look how selfless he's been taking care of you in your time of need. It's only right. How ugly. Nobody's the wiser. But God sees. God perceives the intent of the heart. So we talked about being beware. What is it exactly we are to be beware of? Certainly we can be introspect and examine ourselves for religious hypocrisy. That's something every Christian must do. But we also must take pains to heed this warning not to give our attention and our honor and our money to those with religious influence who have impure motives. How are we to know? Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Turn there and we'll, we'll read this to get close to the end. We'll start with verse 1. 
2 Timothy 3. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Sound familiar? What's the point here? Why are we to beware of them? Because we're naturally attracted to those who appear to be successful, charismatic, wealthy, popular, loved by everybody. Why do we want to ask for a celebrity's autograph even when they've been in a movie we wouldn't take our kids to? (laughs) Because even if we aren't interested in being the center of attention, we love the idea of a person that is. And why is this dangerous from a religious leader? Because they'll lead us astray. Teach us to love the wrong things. Second Peter 2 says that they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They'll convince you to use your resources for their glory and benefit while convincing you that it pleases God. I'll name some names here. Joel Osteen. Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland. If you've got those books on your shelf, use them for kindling at your next campfire. Turn off TBN. Don't hold them in high esteem. Don't imitate them. Don't believe that giving your money to their so-called ministries, which they are not a ministry, is pleasing to God. It is not pleasing to God. The end of our passage today, they will receive the greater condemnation. Sometimes when we're talking about people who have sin that's particularly offensive to God, we use the expression, there's a special place in hell. And we're sort of joking. This is no joke. It's true. That is a biblical thought. I saw a cartoon once that shows Joel Osteen arriving in hell. And he's looking around and he says, hey, I don't belong here. And the angel in charge goes, you're right, right this way, sir. And he puts him in a place where the flames are higher and the pain is worse and there's a sign over it that says, Extra hell! Except for the sign, beloved, that is true. And I don't know, maybe there is a sign. Because though he might look like one, he's not really a pastor or even a Christian. The Bible called people like this false teachers. If he doesn't repent and come to know the Savior and stop fleecing the flock of God, for his own gain. Extra hell is exactly where he's going. He has an appearance of godliness, but his heart and his life deny God's power. The instructions from 2 Timothy are clear. Avoid people like this and know that they will receive tremendous judgment. 
When the text permits, I try to end on a happy note and give you some encouragement or a strengthening in your faith. The ending today is not happy. Sorry. But it should make us fearful and reverent of a holy God and righteous one who will not be mocked. Fear him truly. Love him truly. Proclaim him truly with pure motives. He will not be mocked. Let's pray. Oh God, we stand in fear of you. We can't even esteem your holiness, your perfection. When we examine you with our our poor minds that know so little, all we can see is that you're greater. All we hear in, in that testimony of the angels crying out, holy, 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 is that you deserve more than we could ever give. And we know that you will not be mocked. Lord, help us to live lives that do not mock you. But Lord, also help us to fear you truly, to love you truly, and to avoid those who would lead us astray. Help us not to be drawn to them. Help us to be discerning and wise. Lord, may they never infiltrate this church. May those who are in other churches, Lord, may they be cast out. May your people around the world beware of these false gospels. May we know the truth and may it set us free. Thank you, Lord. Amen.